Hey, Bitcoin people on the internet. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you're having a great week so far. I wanted to give a special shout out to some of my listeners who are in countries I never could have literally imagined I would reach. I've got folks listening from Nepal to North Macedonia, Colombia, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, all over the show. And I actually can't understand how on earth you found me. Irrespective, I'm so grateful for everyone's support, wherever you are. It really keeps this fire going under me, and I couldn't do it without you. Today's guest is Piers Cockrum. He runs a Bitcoin company here in Brisbane known as MineRax. They do mining, mine hosting, and also do some Bitcoin training. I got together with Piers at the Brisbane Club to talk about some Bitcoin Security 101 practices, as well as discussing Bitcoin mining. It's an area that Piers is particularly passionate about. And if you're somebody who wants to sort of nail down some of the fundamentals in terms of security, some of the trade-offs and the different models you can employ, if you want to understand why Australia is non-competitive for the most part when it comes to mining and where there may be some opportunities, this episode is something that I think you probably find quite interesting. Overall, I enjoy how Pierce is able to take his technical experience in computers and that entire world and bring it into Bitcoin. It's such a different lens to the way that I came into Bitcoin. And I think you'll find it quite interesting. Either way, as always, would love your feedback and look forward to meeting you guys at Bitcoin Alive next month. Use discount code Ricky Martin for 10% off. Cheers, friends. Which one's the best crypto asset? Well, Bitcoin's the best crypto asset. Okay. What's the second best? There is no second best. There is no second best crypto asset. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Why Bitcoin Show. I'm your host, Dale Warburton. It's a weekly podcast on why Bitcoin matters and what makes it completely different to all other cryptocurrencies. If you're interested in Bitcoin and you'd like to distill crypto fact from fiction, you've come to the right place. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Welcome. Very pleased, very pleased to be chatting to you today. And thank you for organizing this uh, superb accommodation here. Um, you might notice we've got some prestigious paintings, some Aussie flags, and uh, we're here at the Brisbane Club and uh, really stoked to do this. Bit of a different setting to the brick wall. There we go. <laughs> my, my phony brick wall that people are used to. Hey? Yeah. So, uh, Piers, been wanting to chat to you for a long time. You're one of the wise owls in the uh, local Brisbane community. Always enjoy your takes. Sensible, disciplined, and I've learned a lot from you. Um, we did a great session last year where sort of security 101. And I think, yeah, it opened up my eyes. As a non-tech guy, I sort of thought it'd be a great opportunity to get you on the show. We could talk some a little bit of Bitcoin security-based practices, but Let's just start from the beginning because everyone's sort of journey into this space is different. Some come from a macro, some from tech. How did you get into this this game called Bitcoin? Well, it's not a game, is it? No, it's not. No, uh, but uh, I guess it actually almost started here at this club. Uh, I went along, I went along to a, a conference held here at this club about blockchain and Bitcoin, and I found myself vehemently disagreeing with the speaker. Um, and expressing that opinion to the person sitting next to me, yeah. who then proceeded to invite me and that speaker to a joint debate, a uh, joint presentation 
uh, about Bitcoin, blockchain, and the whole crypto ecosystem to the CEO Institute, which is a gathering of CEOs from a variety of small, medium enterprise companies mm -hmm. that like to get information from various industry professionals about uh, things, topics I haven't heard about yet. Yeah. And like at that point was, uh, I think it was 2021. So there was a lot of interest in Bitcoin back then. We were getting close to all-time highs. Mm. And uh, yeah, I was asked to uh, prepare for this presentation. And in preparing, I realized how little knowledge I had because I hate talking about things I don't know about. Indeed. Uh, I don't have first-hand knowledge of. And yeah, that's what initially sent me down the rabbit hole because first thing I had to do was go through and check, well, how come there's 21 million? Mm. How come there can only be a, ever 21 million? Um, and coming from a software background, I had to go into GitHub take a look at the code uh, and find the specific lines in the code which specify the thing can actually and you've seen that yes i've seen, seen it, it okay yeah. Yeah. and so that was the first sort of step and then i thought oh so i can actually run a piece of this network on a tiny little device Raspberry Pi. so mm. I, I bought one of those and got the software loaded on and then i thought i uh, learned about mining and i went hmm, it'd be nice if I could understand how a mine works. So I stumbled across in another meetup, I stumbled across someone who was actually mining yeah. at that time uh, on GPUs. And yeah, he told me I'm, I'm making $40 a day on my on my computer, um, which sounded way too good to be true. So I asked him, will you show me, will you teach me how you did this? And he proceeded to give me a full lesson on what pieces of book to buy, how to plug it together. Yeah. Uh, still got pictures. And shout out to you, Milo. And within a few days, I had a working mind that I could take along to this presentation with me. The one thing, if you've been in computers like I have for about close on 30 years now, mm. I've never turned on a computer before and just left it running and seen some form of magic internet money coming out <laughs> the other end. Yeah. And let me tell you, the first time you see that and experience that happening and you see these magical numbers flowing into a wallet, uh, app on your phone, it is intensely addictive. Um, so what was originally just one machine turned into three, turned into ten, <laughs> and uh, I was scrambling around thinking, where can I put these machines? And I happened to have my old office that we we held on to as rental property from my software company days, and. We could not rent that office to save our lives because it was right in the middle of COVID. Mm. Um, and yeah, my wife made it very clear to me not to bring these noisy, obnoxious, <laughs> hot miners to our home or, or um, have the oven trip uh, yes. <laughs> on our electrical system. Uh, so I proceeded to put all of these mines into my office um, and probably went a little bit overboard because I started buying racks started getting electricians in and HVAC people uh, to build, basically take windows out of the office, put louvers in, uh, put high-speed fans in to start moving the air and extract all the heat. Before I knew it, I had a giant switchboard with 48 uh, breakers on it. And I was learning all sorts of things about basically how to build mining infrastructure. Yeah. And yeah, proceeded to basically build a bit more infrastructure than I needed because I thought, Maybe there are other Bitcoiners out there who would love to get into mining, but just don't have an accessible, nice place to host these mines. Certainly, they don't want them in their homes. Right? 
if you've ever been near a Bitcoin miner, yeah. you've got a good idea. It's very hot. It's very noisy. It's an obnoxious machine and it plays havoc with your home electrical system. Yeah. So you just don't want one of these in your home if you can avoid it. Mm. Um, so I figured, why not open up my center as a place in the middle of the city where anyone who's got an interest in Bitcoin can book in, come and have a look at what a Bitcoin mine is, play with one, maybe buy one and own one and leave it there with me yeah. uh, for safekeeping. And that's what I proceeded to do. That's how I fell down the rabbit hole. Wow. And it's it's an unusual path because a lot of people just come in for the number go up and you came from more of a tech background. You're looking and you're going, you know, what do you mean I can just create money by plugging these machines in? It's intriguing, yes. It's, and it must curious. be a rush. It must be an absolute rush. Um, but I've heard you say so many times that it's a terrible industry to be in because it's so hyper-competitive, particularly here in Australia. And I'd like to sort of go down that path eventually. Um, but I think there's some there's some sort of other things that I'd like to start off with and then we can go from there. So I know, I know I'm familiar with your company. I've worked um, with you in the past in terms of security. And I know that's a, it's a service that you offer. So perhaps we can just, let's just start with something fundamental. Because I looked at, when you first were like, how does a wallet actually work? Pri you know, private public key encryption, you know, rolling a dice, you know, picking a bunch of words, BIP39, all this kind of stuff. I mean, uh, you know, just if you could just talk us through perhaps just that initial piece in terms of how the hell does 12 words secure my Bitcoin, which doesn't even exist yeah, it's, it's a great uh, starting point because when you're a miner, obviously what you're producing is Bitcoin. Your objective is to get a whole bunch of Bitcoin from the energy that you're spending yeah. uh, and the infrastructure that you put in place. So one of the things you end up getting good at, I think if you're paying attention, is how to look after your clients. And so that sent me down wanting to really understand what is the best practice? How do you actually make sure you secure your coins? And I got really curious. So I started off probably like everybody else, Googling what's the best form of security for my Bitcoin. Mm. And lo and behold, like everyone else, you probably have the same usual suspects that pop up <laughs> in the top of your Google searching. Mm. And you know, I bought those, those devices, learned how to use them. And as I looked through those devices, I thought that this one in particular looks a lot like something Apple might make. And it's beautiful marketing. It looks very easy to use. Mm -hmm. It looks nice and simple. But as I sort of combined my experience and knowledge of how computers work, how security can work and data security from yeah. the background in that, and then realizing, hang on a sec, this machine told me what my words were. I'm hoping and trusting that the machine told me words that are truly random. Because if it didn't, if someone had pre-programmed that machine to give me one of a set of possible words, how can I be absolutely sure that someone else doesn't know how to move my Bitcoin? Yeah. Um, so that led me to basically buy every Bitcoin hardware wallet that's currently for sale, <laughs> including ones that aren't for sale that you actually make yourself. Yeah. Um, and... Then I got even more curious about, well, how does Bitcoin really work? And how can I explain that to people in a way that they'll get and understand when, when they ask me that question? Mm. Um, and I think at, at its most fundamental level, um, and knowing that there's plenty of 
probably experts out there who know more than me uh, who, who, who might be critiquing this video later on. But if you, if you condense it down to its essence, Bitcoin is in fact, it, it's the most extreme example of a system where security is security by obscurity. In other mm -hmm. words, you're hiding in a very, very large crowd. So to put it in perspective for people, basically choosing your Bitcoin wallet is basically randomly selecting a number from one to roughly two to the power of 256. So for us humans, that's a very difficult number to mm. understand the enormity of that number um, and how rare it would be to stumble across. Most people don't even understand maths. Exactly. So like, yeah. what does that actually mean? So one way of visualizing it, which will be equally incomprehensible, is imagine a one with 70 zeros behind it. <laughs> okay. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's a sort of base 10 expression of that number. Yeah. So... And another way of thinking about it is just roughly within a couple of orders of magnitude of the number of atoms in the known universe. Mm -hmm. uh, now, I think that's far too big a number for people to contemplate or comprehend. But if we start off with a, a local example, so uh, nearby to us here in Brisbane, we have a beach at the Gold Coast. Mm -hmm. um, it's a beautiful 70 kilometer stretch of sand. So if you just thought for a second that if I said to you, there's a security system where you can literally pick a grain of sand out of that beach, anywhere on the beach, and hide your treasure on that grain of sand. Mm -hmm. Right? Now you're even just, you're still very, very far off the level of security by obscurity that we're talking about. Wow. Um, so one little grain of sand sitting in that beach, and the job of the attacker who's trying to get your your Bitcoin or your, your treasure mm. is to go and find that very same grain of sand that you selected out of that 70 kilometers worth of beach. Now you're getting close to understanding it. And then you think about you know, the number of atoms that make up the entire planet Earth, the fact that planet Earth is one five hundredth or so of the mass of the sun, the sun is half, half the mass of the solar system, and then yeah, there are 100 billion solar systems, if you like, uh, in the galaxy, and there's hundreds of trillions of galaxies in the known universe. So you get a sense of how big this number is. All right, so there's kind of there's a lot of ground I'd like to cover. So let's just, on the security side, I know that there are no solutions, only trade-offs, nothing's perfect. But if you were talking to someone at um, and saying, who, who valued self-sovereignty, and, and they wanted to look after their own keys and they had a reasonable portion of their savings and their knowledge was sort of moderate. What is in your mind the best sort of best practices? Um, and, you know, feel free to go specific in terms of sure. um, the types of tools you would use and how you go about generating entropy and all that jazz. Yeah. So the, I, I guess the number one step that all of us can take that will radically improve our security and I'm not how truthful it is that we are secure uh, in having practiced all our Bitcoin is to never trust either a human or a machine to tell us what our 12 words are. So really your Bitcoin literally is your knowledge of that number, that random number you selected. Mm -hmm. So it's critical that you know provably that you have chosen that number and that no one else is aware of it, okay? Because if someone else is aware of it, they have the ability to move your Bitcoin, mm. okay? So 
a lot of us who come into Bitcoin, we wouldn't trust a third party commercial vendor who has supplied us with software that may or may not be open source. May or we may or may not have verified that the source code that they've published on their website is in fact the software that's running on our device. Mm. Uh, for a lot of us, we don't have the skills to know whether that's the case or not. So the number one thing that most people can do that will radically improve their Bitcoin uh, security is to come up with their own 12 words. Um, and uh, the way to do that, of course, there's a, a sort of easy way to do that on your own without any resources uh, other than maybe a printer and a computer and internet access is to go to the BIP39 standard. You'll see a dictionary of 2048 words. You print that out. <laughs> You get your scissors and you paste, <laughs> you cut each word up and you drop all the words into a hat and yeah. you randomly mix them up and then you drop 11 of them on the table. You get a coin and you flip a coin number seven times and you enter that information into an air-gapped computer, uh, which can calculate the 12th word from those inputs. Mm. And then those 12 words are in effect a valid Bitcoin model. Whether or not you've sent and received any Bitcoin from that wallet, it, it is a wallet that exists. And you can then choose whichever hardware device you're happy with to restore that wallet using those 12 words that you've just selected at random, that you yes. know provably only you and only you are the only person in the universe who could possibly know what that combination is. Yes. Uh, so that's probably the, the most fundamental basic aspect that, that all I think all Bitcoiners should uh, take that step yeah. uh, to upgrade their security. So we start with that, okay? Mm -hmm. and that's then, the foundation. And, and that's foundation, because even with things like cold card, which many regard as kind of the gold standard, they come you know, programmed with seeds. It's a or you can do it, Or you can do a dice roll. Yep. I've done that. But what you can also do is just restore the seeds that you've rolled Correct. through something like a seed signer. Yep. And then in that sense, you actually know those are the words. People have discussed 12 versus 24 words like, you know, is it materially different? I mean, I recently went and hammered out my C words and it was a pain in the ass, like with 24. So I'm thinking, and, and I've just read that they actually doesn't make that much of a difference. So what's your view on that? Yeah, it's, uh, there's plenty of articles we, we could link into show notes if you wish mm -hmm. uh, that validate that uh, 12 or 24 words really makes no difference whatsoever. Because at the end of the day, an attacker is essentially that they're, it's computationally cheaper for them uh, instead of guessing 24 words uh, or 12 words is just computationally cheaper to run through all two to the power 128 possible combinations mm, yeah. <laughs> of, of ones and zeros to find where your point is. Uh, but yeah. good luck to them. Uh, yeah. They're going to try that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right, that makes sense. So, so whether you choose to represent that 128 bits of entropy as 12 words or 24 words makes no difference to your actual under, underlying fundamental security. Okay. All right. And in this instance, it's just a case of I'll just trust because... I'm certainly not going to go and verify that myself. Okay. So now we also live in an age where we're seeing people mucking around on the blockchain, uh, obviously the Bitcoin blockchain, um, with all sorts of silliness, yep. ordinals, inscriptions. That, and I find that kind of less interesting, but I think it's more interesting is the fact that the fees are going to go up. Yep. And we want them to go up because we want to incentivize miners to keep the network strong. And in the process, there's a whole discussion about saying that UTXO ownership could be privilege we might be the privileged minority in 10 to 20 years and that uh, nothing changes that's probably yeah and 90 you know 95 98 percent of people whatever it might be 
are inevitably going to find themselves having somebody else looking after their Bitcoin, That's which right. we could argue undermines the value proposition, the whole point, owning your own money. So, you know, to that extent, what sort of role do you see for third-party providers in all of these different solutions that are invariably going to pop up? You know, the there's, there's multi, there's collaborative custody, there's multi-institutional um, collaborative custody. Um, you've got ETFs now. There's all these different solutions, perhaps that aren't aimed at Bitcoiners per se, but people who want to get exposure. So, yeah, I mean, have you got any thoughts around, you know, the future in terms of custody? Because we might be the minority. Yeah, that's right. I mean, at the moment, right now, uh, I would say gold standard, probably to, to, to your earlier point, um, that I think all of us should aim for is to move towards multi-signature. And at the moment, uh, under the current protocol, you can tell uh, yeah, if some, someone has a multi-signature address blockchain. Uh, the native language. So you would end up with basically three keys uh, or five keys if you choose so. And you can afford to lose one, or in the case of five, you can yeah. afford to lose two keys uh, or have those exposed, yet still be able to recover your Bitcoin. And so having multi signature basically unlocks the ability for us to explore other forms of custody model that don't compromise the underlying premise of Bitcoin being something that you have some degree of control, well, that you have the ultimate control over. Yeah. Uh, so in a two or three multi-seek, it is possible to give one of your keys to a trusted third party, or even in fact, an untrusted third party, because that third party, if you hand over that one key out of two or three, that party, you know, provably does not have the ability to spend your coins. Mm -hmm. um, and depending on how much information you choose to share with that party, they may not even know how many coins you have. And that's an important distinction because previously it's never been possible to share custody and still be in control. So this is a case where imagine if you, you know, a gold bar only became a gold bar if you had three of these sort of unminted gold bars lying in three different locations. Yes. It's only when you brought two of them together that it suddenly went from lead mm. to gold. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And that's that's pretty much what we have in Bitcoin. Yeah. Um, okay. So and the guy who's got the potential to become a gold bar, the trusted or untrusted third party, they don't need to know that you could have hundreds of these things. That's right. Per se. So you know they they their key could unlock one Bitcoin, hundred Bitcoin. Um, and is that by virtue of not sharing your wallet descriptor or what is it? Uh, is it your UTO, UTXO set? I mean, yeah. this is where my technical so, skills kind sure. of end. Yeah, so there's there's a, um, a common misconception that multi-seed is hard and dangerous. Mm -hmm. You may have heard this on many podcasts before that most people screw up multi-seed. And I think up until recently, that, that was probably a fair assessment. Uh, but there are tools out there now uh, that break this paradigm, um, because previously what would happen is that to set up a successful multi-seek, you needed a little bit more than what I've just said. You needed more than just three keys. You also need something called the descriptor, which is basically the public key of all three of those keys. Mm. So you could choose to, you could afford to lose one private key and you still have two of the other private keys 
plus the descriptor, which is a combination of all of the public keys yes. of the three keys that make up the multi-seed in order to be able to describe the wallet to your wallet software, locate the funds on the blockchain, and then be able to spend and move those funds. Is the wallet descriptor best viewed as like a roadmap? As it to yeah. say, hey, this is actually, these keys are part of the multi-seed. Correct. And in the absence of that roadmap, these keys just operate in isolation and, and uh, we don't, and we're not really sure how they can actually operate together. That's exactly right. So what uh, is fantastic with Multiseed nowadays is that it's possible to engrave into metal uh, or to write down on a piece of paper if you choose to. It's possible to fragment up what's known as the wallet descriptor so that you can you can engrave onto the one media, one piece of metal. Mm. On one side, you can engrave the, the key, mm -hmm. the private key, the 12 words that make up that key for that multi-signature. And on the other side, you can put about two-thirds of the descriptor file that you need, not the full descriptor file, but two-thirds of it on the back of one, one of these keys. And then you can have that repeated on the other, the other two. So you end up with three plates three metal plates, yeah. each plate has a private key on it. Mm -hmm. And on the back, each plate has the backup material that you need in order to be able to recover the plate. Two thirds of that. Yes. You have two thirds on each plate, meaning that when you bring two plates together, you have four thirds yeah. of the wallet recovery information you need uh, and the two spending keys that you need to, mm -hmm. to spend from them. Okay. Uh, which means that you can afford to give one of those plates to someone who acts as your backup a key holder, a custodian, if you like. Yeah. But they have no power over your Bitcoin. They can't spend your Bitcoin because they only have one of the necessary keys. They also can't tell how much Bitcoin you have or be able to monitor on the blockchain what you're doing with your Bitcoin because they only have a fragment of the public key necessary to be able to monitor and check all that information out on the blockchain. Okay. That's and cool. that changes dramatically what the industry as a whole can offer to uh, Bitcoin holders as a backup strategy. Yeah. Um, so you're, you're hearing now about various people that are evolving into this space with a variety of different business models. And I think, I think all of them have some, but they're all testing out different business models, mm. price points, different trade-offs and giving people options. And I think the market will eventually sort itself out into various silos to suit various people on different stages of the journey. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, like some people would say, okay, I'll give, I'll give, I will keep two and I'll give one to a trusted third party. Another person say, I trust myself so little that I'd rather have two trusted parties who are well-established, who've got names and recognition in the space. Actually, I want to do a three or five. Um, there's so many different permutations. Multi-sig is very powerful. What are your thoughts on a passphrase? And tell me if I'm wrong here, but I, as I understand passphrases, you can use them to good effect if you've got, say, a sing if you've got, say, a single sig, and you want to kind of say, all right, I want to keep this pretty idiot proof. It's fairly liquid in the sense that I might want to spend it. So it's not in my sort of cold storage that I've locked away forever. So I've got my sort of 12 words written around on and only I know the passphrase. And then what I do is I have say on the 12 word, I, I, essentially what I do is I have two wallets, both with identical 12 words. One's got a passphrase, one doesn't. 
And so effectively what I do is I have 98% on the one that's got a passphrase and the other one that doesn't. So then if somebody comes in and says, give me your money, punk. And I'll be like, take my 12 words. And the guy goes, boom, puts them in like some, probably a crypto wallet, if you think about it. And uh, <laughs> he's not going to get a Bitcoin wallet. And then it'll be like, oh, okay. I'll be like, listen, that's all I've got. I don't carry this stuff. Does that actually work? And what are your thoughts on passphrases? I, I think the, the the scenario you've laid out is is good. Yeah. Um, and it illustrates, I think, one of the biggest flaws in that approach, which is you still have knowledge uh, and, and access to all of that material, essentially in one location. Yeah. Right. So you actually still have not only if, if you're if you just had 12 words, then you have a complete single point of failure. You either lose the 12 words or you give them away to an attacker, you've lost all your Bitcoin. Yeah. If you protect those 12 words and you create a fresh wallet over the top of that with using a passphrase, mm -hmm. which is just for the audience, passphrase is different to the 12 words in that passphrase can be made up of any string of characters uh, and letters. There are no rules on how long or how short a passphrase can be uh, or what character sets that, that it can contain. So, you know, uh, an example of a passphrase, don't suggest anyone use this, but a, an example of what a solid passphrase might be would be something like uh, the quick brown fox jumped over the lazy dog, one, two, three, four, five, six, exclamation mark, hashtag. Yeah. Um, so you want to obviously protect that passphrase with the same level of security and the same approach as you protect your 12 words. So what you would ideally do is hammer that passphrase into also metal or something permanent means of storing mm -hmm. a resilient media, shall we say, mm -hmm. uh, more so than just your memory <laughs> or a piece of paper. Yeah. Um, so, but then you have essentially two single points of failure because if you lose or damage your access to passphrase mm -hmm. or you lose or compromise your 12 words, if either of those events happen, you now have lost your Bitcoin. So... But what you've also beautifully illustrated is the fact that an attacker can never know because there are so many ways of setting up Bitcoin wallets. They will never be sure that they have taken all your Bitcoin. Yeah. You can always look as if you have complied. Yes, 100%. And look, if anyone's got any reasonable amount of Bitcoin, they would take ample steps to ensure that they have not got it all in one single place so that literally you can't do anything. And that's just the most rational thing to do, particularly if you've got a material portion of your wealth, whatever that means to you. Yeah, yeah. I think I think it's really important that um, you know another misconception about Bitcoin security and and something I think everyone should rethink is if your plan is to set up, for example, multiple keys or copies of keys. Mm. Uh, if you're in a multi-sig or you just happen to have taken your twelve. 24 words and created lots and lots of copies of it and distributed it amongst friends and family, you need, need to really think that strategy through. Uh, because in an adversarial context, you do not want to be in a position where you're now involving friends and family in an attack. Mm, that's exactly right. Especially if you've got some sort of roadmap written somewhere and it's like, all right, Auntie Jacqueline has got this one and uh, Brian's got this one. It's like, Okay, we can figure these things out. I mean, it 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 sounds like in a country like ours where we live, uh, relatively less likely compared to what you know the possibility of happening in South Africa. 
you know, if you're a high net worth running around with Bitcoin in, in your uh, number plates, you know, that's the sort of stuff like yeah. it's it's asking for it's asking for trouble in certain places. I've I've seen reports like in, you know, whether it's Colombia and parts of South America where people kind of those five dollar range attacks can prove to be very damaging yeah that's i mean there's so much more on the security side that we could chat about but i want to make sure we touch on some other things because there's um yeah there's a lot there and you know i suppose the the tldr for anyone watching or listening is um you know no solutions only trade-offs and it's definitely worth um stepping up your game because i reckon i reckon these these bitcoins are going to be worth something significant and definitely consider multi-sigs it's become very easy yeah and run it and it ensures that your setup has no single point of failure yeah uh and this is something that all bitcoiners should describe 100 yeah and i mean honestly i'm not tech i'm not tech savvy it's really easy everything i i only do not see because honestly otherwise i'd have a heart attack conceive okay so we now just shift gears slightly the etfs have come about and they're just sucking a lot of in a lot of volume obviously there's a there's concentration there for the most part in terms of coinbase is custodying most of those you know just give us your thoughts briefly because it, it does speak to sort of i guess bitcoin's core value proposition of self-custody and now we're effectively giving these trusted institutions access What's your thoughts generally on these ETFs and, you know, and, and what it means going forward? I mean, you know, obviously we bullish on price, but what are some of the other things that perhaps you've thought about and maybe others haven't? I, I think it's interesting the impact uh, ETFs will have on providing exposure to people that previously never contemplated uh, a Bitcoin position and to whom you know, rolling dice, uh, picking words out of a hat, it's just not something that, they're prepared to invest in, but they are prepared to dabble in pressing a button on their Bloomberg terminal or clicking uh, a link on their E-Trade, mm -hmm. um, and all of a sudden they've got access to Bitcoin. But there's no doubt that that's going to be a positive factor for Bitcoin's price, mm -hmm. its adoption, and just giving a much wider audience a stake in the game. And when you have a stake in Bitcoin, from the moment you've bought your first Bitcoin, from the moment you have $10 worth of Bitcoin, you start to flip your entire worldview and you start to think twice about everything you've heard about Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. um, so I think you know, these ETFs are going to be a good thing long-term for Bitcoin adoption and it will start everyone on the journey. Uh, now, at the moment, when people do acquire some Bitcoin through an ETF and they decide it's time for me to level up and take this Bitcoin back, into self-custody, yeah. the root shock they're going to get is when it comes time to move it back onto their hardware wallet they've now discovered and learned all about hardware wallets. Yeah. They want one. They want to move their Bitcoin onto their hardware wallet. The root shock they're going to get is if the Bitcoin ETFs as they're currently structured and commissioned right now are sold on a cash-in, cash-in basis, mm. which means that you have put cash, US dollar cash into an ETF you're not going to get Bitcoin back out. You're going to get US dollars back out. And that obviously creates a capital gains tax uh, event yeah. uh, for you as well. Um, so I think a lot of people are going to find that they can't actually take custody of that Bitcoin, which is going to make, and it's not going to be economically viable for them. It would probably be from a, a net tax point of view, better to just leave the Bitcoin that you have accumulated in the ETF where it is and 
uh, to the majority of people, rather than trying to sell it, pay capital gains tax, then buy uh, Bitcoin on an exchange, yeah. and then put it into cold storage. I don't think the majority of people are going to do that. I think what they are going to do, though, is start getting smarter about where they put the balance of their allocation mm. after that. Um, so ETFs, I think, are a fantastic model uh, for enterprises at the moment with small family offices if they want a nice mechanism to gain price exposure. Yeah. But obviously, they're not really getting Bitcoin. Yes, yeah. that's the key. That's the key. Yeah, and it's a cohort you never would have been able to get access that are now getting access. And I think that's the exciting thing. And and there's just so much capital out there yeah. that is looking for something that will preserve its purchasing power over the long run. And, and look, you're right, because, and, and this has probably been said on 100 podcasts before, but <laughs> the part that, that is probably even more exciting and bullish for Bitcoiners in general is that a whole bunch of people are going to have Bitcoin exposure but don't even realize that Bitcoin exposure. You've seen recently Franklin Franklin's yes. options fund, yeah. uh, which uh, yeah, is basically blending in to the default position for pensions that are invested in that fund. They're blending in somewhere between one to three percent Bitcoin. That's uh, amazing. Yeah. So it's almost like adoption by stealth. And yeah, I can see that operating as a fundamental floor, a buying floor underneath. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and, and especially when you look at some of the data around how little Bitcoin you actually need to have material, materially positive impact in the overall portfolio's performance. It's like you only need a couple of points. Yep. And, you know, I've said this a few years back, and it doesn't make me an oracle, just like this is what everyone's talking about. All the supers are going to have Bitcoin. They're going to be exposed. And people, are, I've said to people, you're going to have Bitcoin in your super. You just won't know it. Because they don't tell you anything about um, like what they're actually buying. Yes. There might be a couple of laggards like uh, my former Super uh, Host Plus uh, and uh, GFY to them because I'm much happier now. But uh, yeah, so like I think it's just it's really exciting that these mechanisms exist. I know that we're potentially going to get something similar in Australia this year. Maybe not. Maybe next year. But um, there'll be uh, monochrome. Seems like they kind of primed for an ETF here. Uh, and it's just, yeah, absolute, absolute no-brainer. And it's just one of these things that as Bitcoin sort of, you know, 15 years down the track, you just think about like, people are now saying it's here to stay. And the the FUD, the, it's used by criminals and terrorists and all that jazz, um, the environmental stuff. I feel like it's losing a bit. I feel like it is. I mean, there will always be the the, the last kicks of the, gazelle as it sort of succumbs to the leopard there uh, who's got its uh claw it's 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 a uh, fangs deep on its throat in the uh then they fight you stage yes uh, but the uh i mean you can see that others have said that this is the the end of the beginning and the beginning of the middle mm, that's a cool way uh, yeah um, certainly i was around uh, showing my age here i was around uh, the very birth of dot com and prior to that email <laughs> yes okay um, uh, gopher <laughs> okay uh which is like a precursor to the world wide web um, i used mosaic as my browser wow. in the early days so i can remember the fud that was around the adoption of internet i can remember running around to businesses in my uh, late teens explaining to them why they needed a website and hearing very much the kinds of responses that people say to me now about, oh, there's no need for me to adopt it. 
Bitcoin. Yeah. None of my customers are using Bitcoin. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just going to stick with Australian dollars and fax machines. Um, so absolutely, yeah, we are. It, it has all of those hallmarks and all of those same echoes and feelings yeah. of how the world was back then when it was going through a transition. I think also we need to be also cognizant of the lessons that we learned from how the internet has evolved. So when the internet started, um, and if, if anyone's from the same vintage as me, you'll remember how, how psychopunky it was back then as well. Mm. Uh, it was a, a bit of a revolution against the powers that be at the time. And the dream everyone had was that everyone would run their own web server at home. They would write their own websites. They would send and receive email on their own servers. And does that sound familiar to Bitcoiners right now? The, it is, the philosophy it, that it we is, have, yeah. Like, and, and, I mean, and it all changed. And then you know, it, it all became like you know, all these applications sitting on top, and yeah. all these um, sort of uh, technological surveillance. Remember that we traded. We tried. We chose, and to say there's no solutions, only trade-offs. But some of those solutions that we went for had the trade-off of swapping convenience cost and ease of use mm. for liberty uh and decentralization yeah um, so uh i think there's obviously a danger in bitcoin that we must be acutely aware of we don't want to see bitcoin 20 years time being essentially a group of five or six companies um, yeah controlling our access and adoption and use of bitcoin which is essentially the situation we've landed in now with the internet. Yes, it's still technically possible to host your own stuff, but to run your own email. Um, and, and those of us with an excitement and interest in doing that on the hobbyists, we can. But we are yeah, a small percentage. Uh, we're a tiny amount of leakage that's probably happy, easy for the large big pockets to ignore yeah. because they have such a percentage of market uh, mm. centralized around around them because they've quite rightly and, and, and quite well put together uh, a beautiful package of services that you have to think about. Yeah. And uh, and the same is happening with Bitcoin. And the irony is that I'm involved with, uh, I mean, I'm not, I wasn't going to say I was part of the cypherpunks, but I say I'm involved in these early adopter phase, whereas like, you know, I would say from an internet perspective, I was more just like a sort of coming on as a consumer and um, enjoying all the mainstream stuff. I I think the first thing I Googled was Snoop Dogg and Tupac, weirdly enough. And it was at a showcase there somewhere uh, in Cape Town. And I just remember like, okay, hold on. You can just hop on here and type in anything. You go, whoop, that popped up. And uh, yeah, I remember all those early browsers and everything and how they've all disappeared. And now we've got a handful, which I admittedly use. So it's it's it, the, the parallels are actually quite uncanny. Um, and as difficult as it is for people and particularly, I'd say boomers with respect to like look at and go, this can actually work. Now, boomers are loving Facebook. I mean, you know, my mom's all over that stuff and emails. They love it. You know, in the middle of the bush in Africa, and there's my dad, you know, typing away. So you could have, you know, 15, 20 years ago, you would never have had that. So I'm thinking the same here, except it's the internet of value. That's it. Yeah. All right. So I guess, um, just talking now a little bit about mining, because obviously some of you touched on in the beginning. And yeah, like I, I mentioned to you before we started recording, like I had a Swiss and said, like, it's not worth doing it in my house, even though I've got lots of capacity. Yeah. You've said it at meetups and perhaps at some conferences, like it's hard. It's very, very hard. And you've got to be passionate. You've got to care because, you know, it's it's difficult. And then I think back to a conversation I had with Bob Burnett 
of barefoot mining and the way he described how we've got all these different participants in the mining space in terms of these elephants which are like the massive publicly listed ones then the horses which are uh you know you could say mid-size operations and then the little rabbits people like uh Dads and whoever else, like guys who want to just mine in their own at home. Yeah, I just just talk to us a little bit about like mining here in Australia and some of the opportunities that you've seen, some of the challenges you've encountered, and it it unlocks this whole discussion on energy, which I think could be useful. Sure. So I probably answer several requests per day, moment, and uh, it's interesting how it was very quiet about a year and a half ago, <laughs> and there's a lot of interest right now. But from a wide variety of Bitcoiners who are interested in mining, and they perhaps don't know really much about it, but they're curious enough to say, I'll buy one S90 or S21, yeah. an asset mine, the smallest possible unit of mining, uh, just to play around and have a go. Yeah. And the very first thing I very clear to people so I want them to, to not find this out after they've invested their money um, with the wrong expectation that I guess the saying in my industry would be uh, friends don't let friends mine yeah um, okay if you come into mining and you don't have some kind of edge the likelihood that you're going to end up with fewer sats than you otherwise would have by investing in a miner mm-hmm. and hosting it at a commercial facility of any kind, be it here in Australia, our own centre that we operate here in the city, or with any of the other Australian uh, venues where you can host a miner, or even if you just plug it into this excess solar panel in your roof, the chances of you ending up with more sats than you otherwise would have had by simply buying, taking the same amount of fiat and buying Bitcoin and holding onto it, are uh, extremely high. So you are very, very unlikely, especially with one mine, to ever make your money back on that unit. So where you have an edge is if, for example, you're heavily involved in the energy industry Mm. and you happen to know where waste energy loops. If you've got an inside running on where energy is currently wasted, give us a call because we obviously know what to do with it. But there are, for the vast majority of the people who don't have any knowledge of the power industry, don't have any knowledge really of mining, they're just wanting to buy a machine, hope it just makes money automatically. Unfortunately, the answer is you're probably going to end up not with as many sets as you otherwise could have. Mm. But if you're interested in mining anyway, uh, and you're happy to accept that, then it might be worth playing with. Because one of the advantages of mining is it gives you the ability to buy coins literally with no permission other than paying an electricity bill. Yeah. Right. Okay. And also, if you know how to custody your coins, you can end up with a stash of Bitcoin that uh, is entirely private. No one other than you knows that you have that Bitcoin. Yeah. Um, and to many, many customers, that is an extremely appealing proposition to layer into their Bitcoin strategy. A small portion doesn't have to be much, the small portion of Bitcoin that they know provably, for sure, no one other than them knows they have. Yes, yes. Okay. And there's also, I mean, there's, there's the potential in the future where those types of coins, so-called virgin coins, will have even a, like a, a greater premium than they do. Then they, they, have, they have a premium now. Okay. Um, like if you attempt to sell virgin coins, as you call them, on peer-to-peer trading platforms yeah. like this, RoboSats, et cetera, you'll find that compared to buying, selling those same coins on an exchange, you'll see anywhere from a 5 to a 12% premium 
and um, sometimes even higher. Yeah, uh, because in a number of those trading pairs, uh, like AUD to Bitcoin, you'll see that there's very small amounts of liquidity available mm. on those peer-to-peer -peer markets, and those freshly mined coins with no track record associated with them, no history of identification, are extremely valuable. Yeah. So when we talk about wasted energy, because it's one of the things that fascinates me about mining, but not sufficiently to get involved, because I think I'll probably be financially better off by just buying Bitcoin. You would, yeah. <laughs> the former guest, uh, Rob Warren, had said that uh, he wrote an article called like, Bitcoin miners are like the um, sort of energy dung beetles of the world. And I just love that. They're just going up and scooping up absolute wasted energy that would otherwise just dissipate and go yeah. into nothing. So... In Australia specifically, we know that home mining is a challenge because, you know, our our domestic consumption rates are really high as it is compared to the US and other places. So it doesn't make sense in any universe there. So we're talking wasted really only. What specifically are the best opportunities that you've identified in Australia? Because, I, you know, I don't think we have a lot of hydro, uh, to my knowledge. But yeah, just talk us through some of those yeah, so, uh, Look, in uh, Australia, the best opportunity that I've seen and worked in has been landfill gas. Mm -hmm. uh, shout out to Daniel Back. Uh, because, mm -hmm. yeah, this is an area where yeah, Bitcoin mining will always be most profitable where the energy is cheapest um, to produce and supply. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at your commercial or domestic power bill, and you look at the line item that says how much it costs to generate the power, you'll be shocked at what percentage of your bill is actually the cost of producing the power itself. It's probably only three to four cents is the actual cost of producing your power. Yet you pay between 25 and 30 cents, depending on yeah, where you are in Australia. Yeah, right. Exactly, and yeah. the vast majority of that is poles and wires, the transmission lines uh, that you're paying, mm -hmm. you're paying for. In, a, in Queensland, we have the ambulance levy. We have various other taxes and, and environmental charges that are piled on top, as well as retail margin. And all of those contribute towards, somewhat artificially, inflating the price of electricity. So that what you pay at your meter, at, at, at power plug, power adapter, is, yeah, makes mining in Australia completely uneconomic at scale if you're in front of the meter. Mm. Uh, if you're behind a meter, you can locate your miners at the point where power is being produced, it's possible that you can access the power at those much cheaper rates that you see. You break down what it actually costs to produce the power. Yeah. You can get closer and closer to that number. You're now in, in the game. You're now, yeah. It's possible now to start making money with modern day equipment uh, of those power rates. Um, so the locations that I've seen which make the most sense, Australia's a big country. We have a lot of logistical challenges in Australia and yeah, a lot of high cost labor. We have a lot of regulations and some of them are very valid uh, with respect to safety and protecting the environment, uh, which really do elevate the costs of operating any kind of energy based organization in Australia. Yeah. And so if you're going to operate on a flare gas site in the outback, it could cost you $4,000 on a helicopter ride to get out to the middle of the desert to, to go and service your miners. Yeah, okay. yeah. So if you look at all the different locations and energy classes where you could put a mine in Australia, one of the best in terms of the cost of production is landfill gas. Yeah. And this is because a landfill gas site is essentially a big rubbish dump. It's a hole in the ground. And in Australia, we have some environmental regulations about how... Uh, 
landfills are set up, mm -hmm. right? Which make this particularly interesting for Bitcoin miners because the way it is, you, you basically dig a big hole uh, in the ground, you uh, line that hole with a membrane that, that, that is basically gas proof. Yeah. You pour all the rubbish in, you then cover that up. So you've got this big giant pillow of rubbish mm -hmm. um, and you pierce the pillow with a bunch of straws, if you like, mm -hmm. um, and you gather up all of the methane gas that gradually decomposes from within that pillow of rubbish. So you've got a, a basically a capture device for the methane that's coming from decomposing household, commercial, yeah. industrial, domestic waste, yeah. all commingled together. And at a, a landfill gas site, obviously councils have to pay to have all of this infrastructure put in place. So that's just a cost that's expended no matter what. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a sunk cost to, to rate payer. Yeah. Um, and then the rate payers pay uh, to uh, have their rubbish removed from their home and dumped in the landfill. Yeah. So you essentially, as a if you're operating on a landfill, you essentially have a lot of public funding that's gone into producing your power station. Yeah. And your custom, your your supplier of your fuel is essentially paying you to receive your fuel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so crazy. You can end up with a situation where the cost of producing power on the landfill gas side is in the order of one to two cents a kilowatt hour. Sure. So it's some of the cheapest energy you can possibly buy on the planet. The the flip side, though, and where it becomes complicated, is the opportunity cost. So while it might cost a very small amount of money to produce power at a at a landfill gas site, mm -hmm. that power that you do produce is usually quite valuable because by definition, landfill gas sites are co-located in major metropolitan areas where yeah. there's lots of people around. Yes. So it makes them very easy to operate a mine at that site because it, you don't have to get into a helicopter to go and visit yeah. your mine. Yeah. But equally, uh, it means that there's a ready market for any energy you do produce at that mine to sell on the grid at high prices. Mm -hmm. Okay, so if a landfill gas site is producing power and it's connected to the local grid, they're probably earning 10 to 15 cents on the power they're producing. So why would they sell it to a Bitcoin mine? Yeah. For probably end up being a much lower amount. Yes. Um, so what you have to look for uh, in Australia, the opportunities I think where they really exist are those landfill gas sites where it's very low cost of producing power but where the power production is somehow constrained and not able to be put onto the national grid. Mm, okay. Yeah. So where basically, you, where there isn't like a consumer that's ready to buy the cheap uh, gas, right. and they go, yeah. okay, as a last resort, we'll give it to you miners. To connect, uh, how anyone who's done this will know, and if, if to connect a generation site to a grid and start receiving spot contract prices mm. for the power that you're producing, a tremendous exercise. Yeah, um, we're talking, you know, double-digit millions yeah. of dollars. Yeah, multiple years of application processes, development of protocols, uh, and then the final building construction model out. Um, so in that gap, where you have a mismatch between the amount of power you can produce at these sites versus the ability to offsell it into the highest and best use market, that's where Bitcoin mining makes a lot of sense. Yes. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, I think there's um, there's so much we can chat about on the mining side because it's so it's so bloody interesting. It's just unbelievable how uneconomic it is in like ninety nine percent of 
at the time. And, you know, it's, but it's fascinating how we've got this thing that can actually suck up wasted energy where before, to the best of my knowledge, we had aluminum smelters. So that's pretty much one of the only things that we had. And we couldn't just switch them off like that. I guess another area where if we can get low cost power delivered in the metropolitan area, we could have elephant miners here in Australia. Yeah. The physical infrastructure exists because we have effectively discontinued not to doubt of local manufacturing of energy intensive industries. So we used to have aluminium smelters. We do we do still have some left, but on a global scale, we're quite uneconomic. Yeah, about high power costs and our high labor costs to do that work here in Australia. So a lot of this infrastructure has been built and then effectively left to wallow. Uh, and there's no tenant now available for these old industrial sites with very large transformers and very large uh, substations available yeah. that can, we could draw a lot of power out from. But uh, yeah, those industries have disappeared. So so if if you can repurpose that infrastructure, it's ideal because you just walk into a local uh, site where almost everything's already set up. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Absolutely. Last one, yeah, Piers. Nuclear. When I think about nuclear, there's like, it seems to be like an own goal that most of the West has abandoned nuclear. And again, I'm not an energy expert by any means, but now we've got these small modular reactors that are in production in various parts of the world. I think some places like France demonstrated quite a bit of energy resilience, particularly in the last couple of years in Europe, where they essentially were exposed, their food policy was exposed. Wouldn't it make sense for, you know, Bitcoin miners, whether they are the elephants or the horses, to engage with governments and try and get nuclear back and say, like, look, we recognize it's, you know, a multi-billion dollar exercise, but once that infrastructure is there, I mean, it lasts a long time and the power produced is consistent, reliable, and cheap as all hell. And that's a win for your citizens. I mean, is it just, what's stopping them from happening? Uh, it's earlier, we be called hot potato. Uh, and I think, what do we call it, the Overton window? Yeah. Uh, of yeah. things that are politically tolerable to, or possible to even discuss. Yes. <laughs> uh, I think the Overton window is well truly shut for nuclear in Australia. Well, for many years, probably since Chernobyl and probably bookended by Fukushima. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just been reinforced what are probably anomalous uh, nuclear incidents that have happened that aren't indicative of you know, probably managed nuclear program when you consider, for example, France has had a perfect track record. Yeah. Um, and basically function. <laughs> it's nuclear uh, fleet operational like it has. Yeah, it, it seems like an absolute no-brainer for Australia to, to go that path. But as has been said to me before, we've recently... Uh, I think there's a, a social, economic, and cultural trend to focus on what looks good rather than what works. Mm, 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 mm. Yeah, exactly. There's a quote somewhere. There's a quote that I've seen somewhere that politicians are in the business of selling solutions, and it's independent of whether they work. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, you see that in environment, right? But physics uh, and the economics make no sense whatsoever. Mm. Uh, and yet it seems to be an election winner and a real buzzword. And yet no one has really seen or used hydrogen in any practical economic scale that I've seen uh, either here or anywhere in the world, really. Yeah, and, and it's amazing because it all comes down to also a, a, an inability to have 
sort of uh, any vision beyond the first order consequences to think, imagine if all the consumers and everyone in Australia sort of actually were able to say, look, there's these multiple, there's these two paths we can go. We can go sort of net zero by suing the solar roofs. And this is the real, this is the real carbon footprint of this approach. Because we actually have to dig all this stuff off the ground. We have to produce these things. They're not biodegradable. And it can be unreliable, hail, whatever, whatever. Or we can go this nuclear route. Yes, we're cross on energy. What do you want to vote for, guys? That's just not how it works. Um, it's 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 frustrating, absolutely. Um, but it is oh, it's just an emotional and narrative based argument. It's not a logical fact, fact scientific based. Um, no. <laughs> yeah. and, and then and then also you sort of I mean, long term it's, it's a popularity comics and 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 at the end of the day like you got to think about the um you know without getting too political you just got to think about if everyone's going to vote and you've got some people who vote because they like this person's green hair and the other person is really thinking quite carefully about the policies uh it's you're not necessarily going to get the best outcome that's just uh, electoral politics for you and for your horizons uh, that too they just don't care what happens beyond their tenure Anyway, on that pleasant note, <laughs> oh, I don't usually like to bitch and moan about it, but uh, it, it does frustrate me because it seems as if Australia has so many things going for it. And, and the the energy cost for me is a bit of a, it's been an eye opener, especially when I compare it to what's happening in the States. And I'm coming from South Africa, I'm hypersensitive to it because, you know, my folks are stuck in a, a big solar system. They've got inverter, battery, the whole spiel, because there'll be days with, 10, 12 hours of blackouts. And I don't think Aussies are prepared for that. So when your local bridge is not able to deliver power, that's when having that kind of infrastructure makes sense to you. Yeah. Uh, because you just suddenly realize it doesn't matter about the cost of power. I just want to be able to plant something. That's the goal. Them. Exactly. And that's what they, and that's what they, that's exactly what they said. Like my dad said, it's not economic sizes, just in terms of like you know, the sort of payback and everything. Mm -hmm. But it's just about like, hey, we want to Anyway, Piers, there's so much stuff that we can chat about. I really enjoyed the energy, the mining, the you know security stuff. And um, yeah, looking forward to seeing you at Bitcoin Alive, although we probably we'll catch up before at one of the, the, the next sure, meetup. Yeah. And yeah, Bush Bash, do you want to give the audience a sort of handoff to where they can find you? Sure, uh, I'm available on Twitter. Uh, DMs are open uh, at MineRacks. And uh, we've got a webpage, uh, MineRacks.com, uh, which covers what we do with mining doing training and security products uh, today. Oh, Brilliant. I'll stick the links in the show notes if anyone's interested. But yeah, it's been awesome, man. Really appreciate it Thanks and much. love the venue. Yeah. Love the venue. <laughs> Thanks very much. Great to do it Cheers, cheers. Thanks a lot, man. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and that you got some value out of it. Either way, hit me up on Twitter and let me know what you think. My handle is Dale21M. If you've got any suggestions as to people you think I should be talking to or topics I should address to, I would love that sort of feedback. Otherwise, if you want to support the show, there's a couple different ways you can do that. The first is just to share it amongst your friends and family. The more that people hear the message that Bitcoin and crypto are not the same thing, the better. And I want to help people understand that. The second thing you can do is give me a five-star review on whichever podcast app you're using. Of course, that's only if I deserve it. And last but not least, if you want to stream Satsmoe via the Fountain app, I'm not going to say no, but it's not expected. Thank you so much for your support thus far. It means the world to me. I appreciate the hell out of you and the best is yet to come. Much love, friends. I'll see you on the other side.